it was portrayed as a war without grit. There was this hesitation around talking about what Australian soldiers do, what a military is really there for. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to the 200th episode of Life on the Line. So far, we've released 98 main episodes, which are our usual veteran conversations. But we've actually spoken with a total of 142 Australian military veterans and seven veterans from other countries. We've also had follow-up chats with those main episode guests, a mini-series, special veteran panel discussions, Christmas specials, and almost 70 bonus episodes with, among others, authors, historians, and journalists, like today's podcast. Siobhan Hinu is an ABC journalist based in Townsville for ABC North Queensland. She was previously the ABC's South Asia correspondent, where she reported from India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nepal. She reported from Iraq in the lead-up to the Battle for Mosul in 2016, has covered terrorist attacks and humanitarian crises in East Africa, and has repeatedly embedded with the Australian Defence Force. I brought Siobhan on the show to talk about her career in journalism, discuss media and public access to the ADF this century, and the relationship between the media, the military, and the public in the wake of current stories being reported. Siobhan, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast and uh, congratulations on what an incredible catalogue of um, interviewees you've assembled so far. Congratulations on hitting 200 episodes. Thank you. Just happened to realise, must be getting close to that number and did the tally the other day and realised that you're lucky number 200. That is quite a stroke of luck. And look, I've been listening for a long time and I just love the variety of guests that you get on this show, particularly within the veteran community. And it's always a place where I learn a lot. Thank you. I appreciate that. Just for context, today is 30 October 2020, and normally the dates aren't so urgent, but in a conversation like today's, I feel it's important to state exactly when this is happening. So it's the day before the Queensland state election. So as a journalist, you have a busy weekend ahead of you. Although your day started, I saw on your social media with some attack choppers in the sky and setting the tone for our chat today. Yeah, it sure did. One of the pleasures of Townsville, and I guess one of the bizarre experiences of living here after seeing um, Chinooks in places like Afghanistan and Iraq is that they're just always in the sky, a much more beautiful backdrop as they kind of buzz around and do do strandies up and down the water. But yeah, it's that's always such a lovely way to start the morning. Let's go right back. What first drew you to journalism? I was really lucky in that I grew up in a house full of books. There were so many discussions about history, military history and history more generally, politics, economics, you know, the whole shebang. And I guess that curiosity in the wider world was fueled from a very young age. And the first big global news event I remember being aware of was the start of the Gulf War. 
I was in grade one at the time and I remember sitting in a, um, a holiday unit on the Gold Coast and, and watching the countdown every night when we sat down to the 6pm news and seeing the four days to go, three days to go, two days to go and I had this sense that something momentous was happening and that it was something that shouldn't be turned away from. And I think I've found it really difficult to turn away from big global events and big shifts in, in history and time ever since. Well, then another big one that I'm sure captivated your attention was 9-11. You would have been in near end of high school then? Yeah, that's right. I was studying for my final exam. So I was already up when I got called in to watch the TV as everyone else remembers being dragged in to see this incredible scene unfolding. And that was another kind of tectonic shift and it affected everyone who saw it in different ways. But for anyone who has a sense of or an interest in history and global affairs, that was obviously a huge moment and it has defined a lot of careers in journalism and military and so many other areas for decades. Tell me about your first taste of military reporting, Siobhan. Well, it wasn't strictly military reporting. I didn't have any direct links through my family to uh, the military experience per se. So when I was a young journalist, I began with the ABC as a cadet in Canberra and I was lucky to get sent along to the War Memorial quite often. And that's where I met soldiers and veterans for the first time. And some of those encounters really stayed with me because, of course, I was aware of all the key battles that you learn about in school and very aware of the answers myth and legend but as I began to talk to veterans that's when the myths kind of crumbled a little and real people started to emerge from behind all the jingoism. One of the experiences that was quite pivotal for me was meeting Keith Payne BC when he donated all his service medals to the war memorial. An old fella pretty gruff walking into the room and he, he had this rack of gongs that, I mean, you could have stood three men side by side and you wouldn't have had enough chest to put these medals on. I think he had something like 23 service medals, including the VC that he donated to the memorial. And he was a pretty forthright character and very interesting to talk to. But as the medals were being handed over, he started to, to cry, to quietly shed a few tears. And I found that really quite emotional and moving to realise that whatever he'd been through and experienced still had that much of an impact on his emotions all those years later. I was able to interview veterans from Bomber Command, Harry Smith, of course, um, from the Battle of Long Tan. And then slowly over the years, the veterans started getting a bit younger and there were press conferences with modern VC winners. And I just started to develop more of an interest, I suppose, in the people behind the myths and legends that we're all kind of brought up believing in and hearing about. I can relate to that. It's quite a transportive experience when you grow up just with the shine of, I guess, the poster image of what it is to be an Anzac or an Australian serviceman or servicewoman, and then actually get to interact with the flesh and blood behind that it makes you emotionally connect with the concept that they're a real person and they're carrying all that history with them, like you've illustrated there beautifully with the story of Keith handing over his medals. And the War Memorial in Canberra, that would just be such a rich environment to be based in, to interact with Bomber Command pilots, Keith Payne VC, Harry Smith, SGMC, and just that huge range from that older legacy to the current unfolding events. You're in the seat of power as we are going to war in the Middle East. That must have been a lively place to be as a young journalist. Yeah, it was. And look, I was lucky because when I started covering the War Memorial, Brendan Nelson had just taken over. 
And so suddenly this edifice on the hill, the other edifice on the other hill, became a lot more open to the media and to the public. And he started really telling those stories so often in a way that was so accessible to the press and by extension the public. The timing, of course, was really significant because we were engaged in what were fresh conflicts in the early 2000s. And I remember watching over the years as Brendan Nelson took you know, the fight to the memorials board around acknowledging and recognising the service of Afghanistan and Iraq veterans and their experiences while the wars were still progressing. And that was something that there was a lot of resistance to at the time, you know, that you don't talk about the war in the memorial until it's over. And of course, no one knew when these wars were going to end. And he recognised the importance of telling those stories as they were still unfolding. That's something that also really inspired me to try to do the same and to access and share those stories. You take that passion, that desire to access those stories, and you get the opportunity to experience that even more firsthand when you have your first embed with the ADF. Yeah, that's right. So it was towards the end, I suppose you could say, of, of these um, wars in the Middle East that were sustained for so long. But I was lucky enough to go to Iraq during one of the task group Taji rotations. And the reason why I expressed interest in going was because I found out that there was an Australian senior officer who was in charge, or he was the deputy commander of land forces Iraq. And that was then Brigadier now Major General Roger Noble. It was obvious to the whole world that what was going on with Daesh in Iraq was uh, incredibly important and would have far-reaching effects. And when I found out that an Australian was in this role and yet we'd heard nothing about it, I thought straight away, this is something that needs to be told. This is fascinating. And it was such, I mean, this was just a few or about a month before the battle for Mosul began. So a lot of the training and preparation had been in place for some time. But that was such a fascinating, uh, momentous battle in a city of more than a million people and something that just really needed to be chronicled. And I think certainly from an Australian perspective, because there was so much Australian involvement and that just was not being communicated to the public at all. So I had the full gamut of experience experiences from going to Baghdad and accompanying now General Noble on a bit of a battlefield tour, but also accompanying the guys from 7RAR who were at the time at Taji training the troops, the Iraqis who were heading straight to Mosul. And when I rocked up there, they had something like two or three battalions worth of Iraqi soldiers come through the front gates while I was there. And that was just incredible to see this small number of Australian soldiers who were trying to make these young Iraqi men, some of whom were from Mosul and had families there, better soldiers and give them not just the skills, but quite importantly, the confidence to go and take the fight to an enemy that because of a really effective propaganda campaign, a lot of them thought were 10 foot tall grim reapers of death. So it was really interesting to be able to see the scale of Australian influence. And it's, it's never a big scale, but it's such an impactful influence that Australian soldiers can have in instances like that. And Iraq, during the fight against so-called Islamic State, was no exception. You describe there very vividly the people you're observing, the people you're reporting on, but how is it just for you being there as you're a non-combatant in a war zone, in a combat space in this period of time we're talking about, stepping to a whole new world? 
it is a whole new world and therein lies the rub when you talk about reporting the military. There is such a great cultural chasm between, I would say, the military and civilian street and also the military and the media, two very distinct and strong cultures and they often clash for good reason. But I think the key to successful reporting is the free flow of information and openness and trust on both sides. And on that particular embed, which was my first experience of an embed and a really positive experience, that's what happened. It was kind of guided by the CO 7RAR at the time who made it a condition that I accompany the troops throughout their mission readiness exercise in Australia before they deployed. And so I was able to get to know them. They were able to get to know me everyone sussed each other out and worked out what the other side was interested in and that was just such a clever way to begin the embed because the problems with embeds in conflict zones in particular is from a commander or a soldier's perspective you get this complete stranger from the media which comes with obviously a lot of heavy um, associations and they rock up and they're, you know, they can be a distraction to the mission and just this kind of alien entity that disrupts the flow of things. So to be able to establish a bit of a relationship in the lead up and more importantly, maybe to, to continue that relationship after interactions with the military, that's really important. And I think that's where the most successful embeds have happened. You know, you often get reporters who perhaps have never been in a conflict zone or maybe they've never done any defence reporting. A lot of reporters tended to come from the press gallery in Canberra in the early days of the embed programs in Iraq and Afghanistan. A reporter from the press gallery is naturally going to have a domestic political kind of prism through which to tell stories. And that's very different from if you get someone from, you know, the Townsville Bulletin or a documentary maker. So, you know, the media is not a homogenous group in the same way that uh, the military is not a homogenous group. And so that ability to just spend as much time talking, getting to know each other as possible was really quite important. From what you describe with your upbringing, you came from a well-read family and obviously the right traits to be a journalist, but without those family military ties, it feels like you've stepped into this space with a completely open, curious mind. And then being over there allows you to sort of live and breathe it with them to a point. I mean, in the day-to-day, are you going to the mess with them and having meals with them? Like, What's the sort of level of interaction like when the cameras aren't rolling? I am so glad you asked about the mess, Alex, because the mess is something that seems like such a small detail, but interactions between the media and the military in mess halls, I believe, are really symptomatic of the dysfunction that sometimes exists in the relationship between those two groups. When the embed programs began in the mid 2000s, 2010, 2011, and some of the earlier programs, which weren't proper embeds um, in media, they referred to them as armchair tours or bus tours, where you just kind of got on a bus, stayed behind the wire, and you know saw some schools and training projects and things. Oftentimes, reporters were not allowed into the mess. They were not allowed to talk to soldiers. And a more recent embed I did to Afghanistan, that was the rule. I was not allowed to go into the mess and talk to anyone of any rank unless I had a public affairs escort with me. I wasn't allowed to have a conversation with anyone in the lines, even though we were living in the lines with the soldiers and got to eat with them as well. But there were just these huge restrictions. There have been incidents. There was one in particular where, you know, a, a junior officer said something a little bit negative about Dutch partners and that then led to, you know, a little bit of uh, diplomatic intervention having to happen behind the scenes. There's always risk, but there's also 
reward in those situations. And when I walked into a mess hall in that mission readiness exercise with 7RAR, because the CO was open to our presence, the soldiers had obviously been briefed that it was okay to talk to us and we weren't the enemy. And we really got that sense right from the start that, that we were welcome and that we were encouraged to learn. So people came and sat down with me of all ranks. And I remember a couple of junior officers sitting down and talking in great detail about the current state of affairs in Syria and telling me about books that they'd read on the topic. And in that moment, all those kind of myths and misconceptions about the Aussie digger just came crashing down in a heap because that was the first time that I was made aware of how educated and how professional and how passionate a lot of Australian soldiers are. And I think in society, we still have this idea in some quarters of the digger that's really just fueled by the Anzac legend circa Gallipoli. So there's still that idea of the farmer soldier, you know, the larrikin lad who's just given a bush hat and a bayonet and sent off to war. And that's not really what modern soldiering looks like in the Australian Defence Force at this point in time. And so for me, that mess hall interaction was one of the first and most important that I had when starting to report on the military. It was kind of this moment of epiphany for me when the myth came crashing down and I saw what Australian soldiers now are like and, and what they can do. I've experienced the same, how majority of veterans I know, how well educated they are, how well spoken they are, how they were reading about history or politics while on operations even. And at all ranks, Alex. And I've come back from every embed with reading lists from various soldiers who have shared their deployment reading lists with me and being able to take that back and read some of the, the titles that they're reading while on deployment and you know expand my own understanding and knowledge. That's something that happens behind the scenes that I that I really enjoy being able to kind of exchange pointers like that. Not to say that there aren't still the true blue grunt that does the shoey in the spare time kind of character as well. That still exists very much in the army. Absolutely it does. They're all stories that need to be told, you know, that diversity of backgrounds, interests and experiences is what makes the Defence Force not a homogenous group. And if we're to gain a better understanding of the men and women who serve, then that full range of stories needs to be told. To be able to access people from all ranks and have discussions with them about their lives and their service is an incredible privilege for me and very, very fascinating, but also really important to be able to share with the broader public so that there's not that kind of dichotomy of, you know, either the bad boy or the golden bronzed Anzac and nothing in between, you know, because there is so much in between. And I think that that's something that really needs to be explored in a more effective way. When did that embed finish up? So the first one to Iraq ended just a couple of weeks out from the start of the battle for Mosul. I was able to come back then and um, it was interesting because we were all watching it remotely in a sense. It was almost impossible to report from Mosul itself as it was, you know, in Syria as well. You know, there are fewer and fewer war zones now where journalists can gain access as has happened in the past. You know, journalists are now absolutely targets in a lot of these war zones and that affects our ability to tell the story from a broad perspective. But I also think that's what makes it more and more important to be able to tell those stories of conflict through an Australian perspective because Australians are engaged there and we need to be able to get across the fact that we've got eyes on and a lot of highly trained, very able personnel who are incredibly entrenched in some of those operations. 
you described how you had a higher level of access in Iraq and then in a later embed in Afghanistan, you had more restrictions placed upon you. What was it like being embedded with the ADF on home turf when you were embedded with them in Exercise Talisman Sabre in 2017? Yeah, look, Alex, it, it really varies. I wouldn't say that I've had all bad or all good experiences with embeds, but they've always been very fascinating. And sometimes when access is more restricted is when you see, sometimes you learn a bit more about the, the motivations behind how elements of defence wants to tell or not tell its story. Exercises domestically are really important and I think that in order for you know the media and the military to work better together in telling Australian stories, there needs to be a lot more of a, a commitment from reporters and journalists to go on those exercises to learn. I hear quite a lot some of the concerns among soldiers and officers around having the media telling their stories is that the media just doesn't get it. They don't have the professional competence or the knowledge to be able to tell the story. You know, of course, there's all those kind of sometimes misplaced assumptions that the media just comes in and starts sniffing for scandal and slander. But there needs to be a level of education and understanding before the media can tell stories with a bit more depth and a bit more nuance. I mean, you know, a lot of journalists are very good at telling human stories and, and human stories are what audiences like to hear and it's how we understand each other and understand the world. But there really does need to be an improvement on the media's side in terms of storytelling from a, a strategic perspective, I suppose. Military affairs are by nature extremely complex and I think it's incumbent on the media to do more domestically, to be involved in the exercises. You know, access isn't always granted to them either, so it, it does work both ways. But I think through peacetime or through those training periods is when the journos need to put their hands up and say, can I come and have a look? Can you explain what's going on here? There's not many defence specialists in the Australian media, and that's so different from the American experience, for instance, where there's a huge Pentagon press corps. A lot of Australian journalists are not specialists, they're generalists, and that's by necessity because, you know, the industry is shrinking, people are being asked to do more with less. And there has been a reduction in dedicated defence and security correspondence over the years. And so that leads to journalists coming into exercises and embeds sometimes who don't know the difference between an officer and a soldier or don't know the difference between a platoon and a brigade. And that's fine, but there needs to be effort on both sides so that that education can occur so that the media can be better equipped to tell military stories. And that's why this tendency uh, during some periods to keep the media at arm's length is, is really um, self-destructive, I suppose, for defence because it means that reporting can't be improved. Whereas if there's access and information, then um, people can do a better, a better job. I agree. It can sometimes feel like you have to prove yourself or earn your stripes before we'll give you a real chance. Not always, but there's sometimes the vibe that comes from the other side of it as well. If you don't come in knowing your stuff, why are you here? Yeah. And, you know, that's the case no matter what round you're reporting on, you know, um, in the same way that a commander needs to read widely and talk to a lot of people and be across his briefs. Journalists have to be the same. 
I won't resolve from the fact that there are difficulties within the media as well when I pitch stories that have a, a military slant and going on to Talisman Sabre was one of those. It was in 2017, so it was that first really big amphibious landing. Looked amazing, absolutely spectacular. Biggest kind of land invasion operation since uh, the Battle of Balakpapan, you know, in World War II. So pretty significant, but that wasn't enough for me to sell it to my editors. And so I had to come up with a way to make the exercise more newsworthy and through discussing what was going on during the exercise with um, the exercise director, we were kind of able to settle on this this idea of cyber warfare, which was something that hadn't been extensively reported on in, in the Australian press just, you know, a few years ago. And so this was, if not the first, but one of the first exercises where cyber warfare was really integrated into the exercise. And so we were able to, you know, to turn it into a story that spoke to, you know, some of the, the future challenges that the Defence Force was facing, as well as use all those fantastic pictures of the amphib landings. I want to get to our main topic today, but just to cover off the rest of your career over the last few years quickly, in 2017, you were also appointed the South Asia correspondent based in Delhi, where you covered a range of countries in that area. You reported on some landmark events from the Colombo Easter bombings to Islamic State recruitment in India, the India-Pakistan Kashmir confrontation and airstrikes in early 2019. In 2018, you're back in Afghanistan, as you've touched on. And during that period, you are there for the first Taliban Afghan National Army ceasefire, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So that was the Eid ceasefire in 2018. And so once again, it felt like this shift in time in that particular conflict because it was clear that, or it had been clear for many years, that uh, a military solution wasn't possible and that a political solution was the only way forward in that theatre. And so it was uh, interesting from my perspective because suddenly we had no freedom to, you know, move around on the ground. We had air movements only during that embed because of the fact that uh, the coalition forces were excluded from that ceasefire and were still targets. But it was certainly strategically, um, you know, and in terms of the impact on the region, it was it was a significant point in time. And so it was really interesting to kind of feel like there was a bit of the shifting of sands. Anyone with an interest in the progression of history, I suppose, or the experience of humanity is drawn to war as a subject or an experience. That is where the rise and fall of nations and empires and ideologies happen. That's an experience that I was able to get a sense of on the ground as that first ceasefire occurred. And of course, we've seen a couple since then and the intra-Afghan talks, which have begun just, just recently. Once again, we stand back at this point in time and kind of watch from afar as things progress in that part of the world. But it is a vital part of the world for Australia's interests. It will be well into the future. So being able to go to South Asia at a time of, you know, constant upheaval, you know, there were clashes on the Indian border with China. There were clashes in Kashmir between India and Pakistan. And you got the sense that you're in a bit of a bad neighbourhood, but things that would impact on the future of our alliances, of our potential future operations were kind of unfolding. One of the big challenges, but also privileges of being a foreign correspondent is being able to marry the day-to-day -day news with that broader historical perspective and that kind of sense of geopolitics from a, a kind of a zoomed out view. That's what makes the job really rewarding is that you're able to blend present with the, the past and the future. Well, speaking of the past and the present, your past very action-packed overseas, lots happening 
in 2020, it's a fair guess of me to say that you've been spending more time at home. Haven't we all, Alex? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been really quite bizarre. I was due to go overseas for a foreign correspondent report just two days before um, the ABC kind of preempted the official government advice to just shut down all travel. And so we've all been, I guess, reporting from home, which I think as a former foreign correspondent is a bit soul crushing because we thrive on getting out there. You know, I thrive on being amidst the action and at the pointy end and being able to talk to people face to face. You know, there's nothing like just being on the ground. You know, they call it the ground truth for a reason. The Zoom truth doesn't quite have the same ring to it. And I don't think it has quite the same effect. So as a correspondent and journalist, I'm definitely looking forward to a time when we're able to throw ourselves forth (laughs) into the fray again, because it's really important. 2020 is about to be defined, I think, by the US election that's around the corner. And it's a little bit scary to think that not only are we experiencing that in a time when, when the media and society is pretty fractured and disjointed already, but to think that people aren't going to be able to necessarily access the truth on the ground in the way that we have in previous years. Travel is restricted, that interactions with other people is restricted. That makes the task of telling stories more difficult than ever. And I think it makes the task of understanding and sharing realities really difficult for the broader public. I fully agree with you, Siobhan. I also miss the face-to-face interviews. And I think for what you're doing, that's obviously of greater importance than this. But there's an element there when you actually have that face-to-face exchange, you get to just tell that quality of story better. Or I can imagine for the kind of reporting you've done when you're on the ground, you get that on the ground feel. You've got that finger on the pulse, as it were, much more vividly, much more organically than if you're just trawling through Twitter or other sources. Moving on to our bigger picture discussion for the day. I think it's fair to say that the level of access and cooperation between the media and the military hasn't been entirely consistent on operations in the 21st century. What impact do you think that's had on the general public's understanding of the various roles our military has played in the Middle East theatre for all that time? Yeah, I think the public understanding has been very narrow as a result of pretty consistent lack of, of meaningful access. Chris Masters, who is the only, to my knowledge, Australian journalist who's embedded with special forces this century, said that Afghanistan in particular was Australia's, you know, it's Australia's longest war and its worst reported. A former guest on this podcast, Reese Crawley, who's a war memorial historian, official historian, said that he thought it was a bit easier to track the campaigns of World War One, you know, of Gallipoli, than it has been to track the operations in Afghanistan. And that's despite the fact that there was active censorship and all sorts of delays in shipping information back and forth from theatre. So I think we've had a pretty, not sanitised, but just limited view of that war. And it's kind of been limited to deaths and VCs being awarded. And as I alluded to earlier, there hasn't been much in the middle. Special forces elements in particular saw some of the most aggressive fighting Australia's experienced since Vietnam and Afghanistan. That is starting to be talked about and reported now and people are writing books and there's a lot of um, interviews and things like that which are all really important for posterity. But history should be told contemporaneously as it was in the days of Charles Bean, you know, and there's a long tradition of official war historians and reporters as well as various members of the Fourth Estate reporting on, on Australia's experience of war. That kind of just fizzled out quite a bit during, you know, what, what was a very long war and it was hard to sustain public attention 
situation. There were certainly faults and challenges from the media's side, as well as how the ADF facilitated coverage of, of the war. But I think it was kind of portrayed as a war without grit. We are hearing those stories of grit now, but at the time when there were all those kind of um, quote unquote bus tours behind the wire, you know, we saw schools and insurers and we didn't hear much about war fighting accomplishments. There was kind of this hesitation around talking about what Australian soldiers do, what a military is really there for. So without that kind of um, storytelling from the time and place and, and the first person accounts that you get in a war zone. I think we're going to have a, a poorer collection of historical artifacts going forward to kind of to use to continue to tell that story. And history is something that, you know, kind of is, is refined over time. Books and interviews many years later aren't really enough. You know, we know that memory shifts and that a way you tell a story 10 years after it happened rather than 10 minutes after a, a tick or whatever is, is going to be completely different. There are already challenges around um, the collection of things like emails and artefacts. You know, in wars gone by, people kept diaries because of the digitization of communication. You know, we're not going to ever see those kind of Skype calls that people made back home, which are the modern equivalent of um, the old letters. And so there's kind of a lack of artifacts as well that will just tell that story of the personal experience of Australia's war in Afghanistan. I won't name him, but an SAS officer I know kept a diary of operations at the time, which was illegal, but he kept that. And I think that's going to be a more valuable resource for historians in the future than the interviews given to historians or podcast hosts for that reason. And obviously I value that kind of storytelling, look at what I'm doing. But I totally take your point that that in the moment, lack of access and Teresa's point, it's great our technology and sort of the amount we can capture, whether it's through GoPro cameras, all that kind of thing. But if we don't have the Charles Bean equivalent on the ground, walking the Western front, so to speak, that is just lost and you can't make up for that later the same way. And that is for, yes, that grit and that realism of, say, the Special Forces aggressive combat fighting work. But it's also then just you were given the bus tours oh, here's a school built and such. But I don't know, I still feel like sometimes the humanitarian work done by the regular army or the drug interception operations by the Navy, that diverse range of roles our military accomplished over there wasn't as also well told as it could have been either. Absolutely not. There was so much going on that was just happening in a bit of a public affairs echo chamber. I think sometimes there's this idea that, you know, we're the best at telling our own stories. But when those stories aren't given kind of a, a big platform and, and big audiences, the end result is that it can lead to just ignorance in the general population about what's happened and what's been going on. And that ignorance fuels ambivalence, which is, I think, a really sad situation to be in. These have been long wars and public attention did fade. Media attention ebbed and waned as well, you know, absolutely. It was difficult sometimes to convince editors that it was it was worth going to the expense of time and money to cover these things. So there's no one party that should wear the blame for shortfalls, I guess, in, in the telling of the story of Australia at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Even going back to Mosul, you know, again, that was an instance where it was almost accidental that I found out that there was all this Australian involvement at these high levels. And of course, we know now how involved SOTG elements were in assisting and guiding elements of, of that battle and, and the training that preceded it. It's not something that can be covered uh, retrospectively. If it's not told at the time, people are left unaware and 
ambivalence in the general population is something that has kind of operational and strategic effects, not just in the present, but in the future. It's in the interest of commanders and the government to have a population that's engaged with this story. Ultimately, the force and the capability of the ADF is generated from the community. We see it as this kind of separate club, but it comes from the community. If that kind of connection is eroded or ignored, then that can bear unwanted fruit in the future. John Bale of Soldier on Fame wrote a great article, I think back in August, about losing the good news stories. And part of that he was talking about being lost in a lot of media attention on at the moment. But also, yes, just that lack of reporting, that lack of understanding, how it leads to ambivalence, how it affects all the good news stories we had from all our great humanitarian work the ADF was doing in the Middle East and is still there doing. That media-military troubled relationship has had an effect on the good news stories, and it also can put the bad news stories into a harsher light. It feels like Australian military operations in the Middle East are getting more airtime than ever at the moment due to all the reporting on alleged war crimes and the investigation and subsequent impending report that is always seems to be a few weeks away and that just keeps going. It's a highly discussed and charged space, and to be clear, today we're not going to talk on any specific allegations or reporting itself. But Siobhan, as someone active in this space and a journalist, what's your take on the public and broader institutional responses to these stories about alleged war crimes in the wake of that lacking that background and that depth of more nuanced understanding about our country's role in these conflicts for the past couple of decades? I think, unfortunately, one of the results is going to be that some of these negative stories will leave quite an impression in the public's minds about what that war meant and what Australia's engagement in Afghanistan was all about. Now, of course, this is not a situation that's unique to Australia. There have been allegations of war crimes in the US and also with UK troops. So it's something that's being dealt with in many liberal democracies. And that is a good thing that those things can be dealt with because that is what distinguishes us from autocracies and other, other forms of, of government that we seek to distance ourselves from. Ultimately, I think the focus when it comes to telling stories about the military and the military selling its own story, the media and the military, I think, do themselves harm when they focus just on themselves and their own goals because ultimately both groups are there to serve the citizenry, you know, to serve civil society. That's what the fourth estate is there for. That's what the ADF is there for. And I think the standards have to be higher than they should be for, say, you know, a corporation or a government department because the ADF is there to defend the nation. It has its Australian lives in that process. And so it shouldn't be just a, a PR kind of exercise or a corporate marketing exercise when we go to war and tell stories. There's immense historical significance to it. And it's also the engagement of the military with the media and by extension public. I mean, obviously, I'm not telling anyone anything new by saying that that's a vital part of, of democracy. There has to be deliberation in the public sphere around these topics, including, you know, the more unsavoury elements of war. And that's kind of the, the debate and the deliberation that, that's going on right now. Those debates and discussions are also important because they allow us to kind of shape and question things like, you know, our community, our culture, our values and identities as Australians. 
And so they're debates that can't be stopped. They, they will happen from this point in time. And of course, this is not just happening in the public sphere. The IGADF reporting process was well underway, or the investigation was well underway before any of the media reporting began. And it's important to note that a lot of the revelations, the information that people are now hearing for the first time through the media comes from inside the tent, you know. There have been whistleblowers inside. It doesn't just, you know, come out of thin air. Australian culture around things like, um, I guess, freedom of information is actually quite different from the way that it runs in places like the United States. So some of the cultural issues around openness aren't just specific to the military. Court reporting in Australia, for instance, is much, much more restricted than it is in the US. So there's a broader cultural flavour to all this as well. But they're all things that will be discussed, need to be discussed in society and in the ADF. There's a lot of I guess, relief and valid attention on on issues that people do want to talk about. As stories break, as things develop, this space develops, I think we're going to be invited even more to reflect, to discuss, to debate. There'll probably be some arguing, but I hope it triggers a certain level of reflection on a range of topics, including how can we better engage each other. It feels like the only solution to the problem we've addressed previously about that lack of, say, media access or public engagement. The only way to address that now is podcasts, books, exhibition space at the War Memorial, all that kind of thing. We can only try and repair that, but hopefully it can actually make us think going forward, how can we make this better? How can we make these relationships work more effectively? We want that public media military trifecta to really work together because that's in the best interests of all parties involved, I think. Yeah, look, and the tension is nothing new. There's a quote attributed to Napoleon, I believe, that four hostile newspapers are to be feared more than a thousand bayonets. So the tension is not fresh. But by the same token, our current uh, CDF several years ago made a statement to the effect of war is sustained through public support. And so if you come back to that idea of both the military and the media serving the public and serving the Australian people, that's probably a good starting point from which to drive things forward. It's been a great discussion, Siobhan. Where can listeners find you online to follow what your next adventures might be when the world eventually starts to open up again? I'm very active on Twitter, Alex, at Siobhan Heenu. So I love having a, a chat to people. Mill Twitter <laughs> in particular, hashtag Mill Twitter, is a, a group that I really enjoy being engaged with. I love the way that social media, it's become one of those those places, one of those, a virtual mess hall, if you like, where you can kind of sit down and, and have discussions and share ideas and experiences. So Twitter's probably the place to, to find me. And of course, I'm on all the other social media platforms as well. So come and say hi. Well, Siobhan, thank you for coming to speak with me today about not just your career, but those insights, because I think that military media discussion, it's obviously been talked about a lot for a range of reasons. And whatever side of the fence people might fall on on certain issues, I think just more understanding and taking a breath is needed for everyone's sake. So I appreciate you coming on to share your insights and hopefully open up new avenues of conversations between listeners. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been really great to talk. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the 200th podcast of Life on the Line with Siobhan Hinu. We still have five episodes to come in Season 4, including conversations with veterans of the 2nd Commando Regiment and Special Air Service Regiment. In this chat, Siobhan referenced Dr. Brendan Nelson and the Australian War Memorial, 
we've done two podcasts with Dr. Nelson. In season one, check out his conversation with me in Remembrance Day with Dr. Brendan Nelson. Nothing has ever made me prouder than to see these young men and women doing what they do in our uniform, under our flag, in our name, in these remote parts of the world. And this year, his conversation with Angus Horden, the bonus episode, Teddy Sheen VC, with Dr. Brendan Nelson. But Sheehan observes the Japanese zeros strafing, shooting at the men abandoning ship and the men in the water. Siobhan and I also referenced Dr. Reese Crawley in this episode. For that conversation, check out the Season 2 bonus episode, Australia in Afghanistan, with Dr. Reese Crawley. The fact that the story is unfinished is certainly there. So while I said our history finishes in 2014, clearly what has happened since then affects how you write about Afghanistan and, and how you think about it. That's a picture that keeps updating every day. Afghanistan veteran and former public affairs officer Tony Park remembers when his job changed and he felt his hands tied behind his back due to a directive to, quote, control the message. Don't miss his insightful conversation with me from earlier this season in number 81, Tony Park. The public affairs officers were not given the chance to do their job, basically. They became electronic paper shufflers. Peter Crossgrave used to say, we're a small force that punches above its weight. And it's so true. And it is so true. There's a risk of believing your own propaganda, but it's not until you see it. I saw a general, commanding general in Afghanistan, who in his departing speech, I wouldn't have wanted to be some of his underlings because he was saying that when he knew we were leaving, he was saying that I would rather have one squadron of Australian Special Air Service Regiment troops than two battalions of American troops with me. And that's, you know, there's a fair bit of looking at your shoes amongst the American ranks at that time. But we were incredibly valued in what we do, and we are an incredibly professional defence force. But because of this need by politicians to control the message, and particularly to control the defence message and to centralise everything in Canberra, we've lost the ability to do our job. I've spoken with a couple of other journalists on this podcast in bonus episodes. In season four, Mosul with Ben McKelvey. The Inspector General's report into war crimes was starting to spool up then in 2014. The guys were sort of wondering what they were going to do for the rest of their lives. And in 2017, Season 1, Minefields with Hugh Rimmington. Even as we pulled up, the place was under ambush. There was a big standing shooting match against the tree line. Gave us a chance to get some nice specky sort of combat shots. And for insight into the life of a currently serving public affairs officer in the Army, in Season 3... Check out number 45, Dr. Sharon Maskeldare. Everyone who deploys, who has a family knows. It's a reality that you are away from the people that you love. Follow this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast. We're also on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. You can subscribe to Life on the Line on YouTube for video podcasts and to our e-newsletter by going to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. Forget.